Hill Church. All right, so we're going to start off with a story. All right, so when I was 10 years old, my brother, my older brother, discovered a blackberry bush about 15 minutes from our house. Now, in Tango, it was a blackberry bush. That is an understatement. It was probably more like a blackberry tree. This thing was huge. It was probably bigger than our whole house. And we didn't live in a tiny house, not a big house, but it was big. And so, whenever the, the blackberries were ripe, we would put on our jeans and our long sleeve t-shirts, get our Tupperware, and head out to the blackberry tree. And there we would stand underneath the vines, and you would look up and see all of the blackberries, thousands upon thousands. And we'd spend hours picking these blackberries until our bowls were full, until we had gotten as much as we could carry. And then we'd traipse on back home with cuts on our hands, with thorns all stuck to our clothing, with our fingers stained purple from the juice. But we had, we had found our riches, right? We had, we had our glory with us. We had our blackberries in full. And we'd take them to my mom, and she would make them into blackberry pie, right? And when you're eating blackberry pie, all is right in the world. That is where you want to be. And so as I reflect back on that blackberry bush, I'm affectionate towards it. It was a place of real blessing and abundance, a place of fruitfulness. And that is actually God's vision for our lives. That is his vision for the Christian life, that we would be a fruitful people. That when people encounter us, they would find us to be a blessing and a place of abundance, a place of fruitfulness. So today we're going to be talking about that call for Christians to be fruitful. And for you who are Christians here, that is a high call. You are really called to bless others, to love others, to be fruit unto them. But you might have the question, obedience is sometimes hard. And maybe it even seems impossible at times. How are we going to do it? And for those of you who aren't yet Christians, you may have that question, what is God requiring of me? What is he really asking? How much do I need to give? But you might have the alternate question, how can I be a blessing to other people? And so we're going to be looking at John 15 today. John 15, 1 through 17. And through this text, we're going to see three points. We're going to see that though Jesus, though God the Father really does require fruitfulness of us, he provides that fruit in Jesus. And likewise, he actually makes that fruit grow in us. So we're looking at John 15, 1 through 17. All right, but before we jump into the text, I want to get a little bit of context here. We're in the midst of John's gospel in the farewell discourse. The farewell discourse. So this is a really long text of just Jesus talking. And what he's doing is he is telling his disciples his last words before he goes to his death. These are his parting statements, what he really wants his disciples to know. So they've already had a pretty heated, emotionally charged dinner where Jesus presented himself as his body, where he washed his disciples' feet. He identifies Judas as the one who would betray him. 
he identifies Peter as the one who would deny him three times. But then he stands up, he rises, and he leaves that place. He begins walking towards the Garden of Gethsemane. He starts walking towards his death with only 11 disciples in tow. He heads out. And we can imagine that in the dimming light, the disciples are confused and they're wondering, where is Jesus going? Why are we going to our death? And Jesus turns and stops along the road and he looks at a vine. And this is what he says to them, starting at verse 1. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As a Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay his life down for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in the name of the Father, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Let's pray. Father, may we come to know Jesus as the true vine. Would you teach us? Would you help us? Would you guide us into truth? Fill us with the Spirit that we may understand your word. In Christ we pray. Amen. All right, so... The first thing that we see here is that, all too clearly, the Father expects fruitfulness. You can't get around that in the text. When Jesus says he is the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser, what's going through the disciples' minds? What image comes to mind immediately? Well, these are, these are first century Jews, so they're going to think of their first century Jewish understanding, and they already have a picture of what the vine is. Where do we see the vine? The... <laughs> Quiet over there, Tim. <laughs> Hypothetical questions. <laughs> uh, so we see the vine. 
We see the vine in actually um, a few places, places like Isaiah 5 or Psalm 80. This is an image of Israel. So the people of God are actually called the vine of God. He chooses his vine, and then he plants them in this lush and protected garden that they may bear fruit, bear fruit for the whole of the world. And yet these passages talk about how Israel does not yield fruit. They either yield nothing or they yield wild, sour, and bitter fruit. And because of that, God judges them. And he stops caring for them. And the result is that these vineyard walls are broken down. Wild beasts ravage the garden. And the vine is left to wither and to die. So when these disciples hear about the vine, they're thinking of an image of condemnation and of judgment against Israel. God expects fruitfulness. He expects it, and he requires it. So much so that, that he can be called the demanding vine dresser, and he makes sure that every branch bears fruit. Look at verse 2. This is how he is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, the Father removes. And even those that don't bear fruit, they are pruned so that they may bear more and more fruit. He is not content until... We're as fruitful as possible. <laughs> Come on, Mark. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> All right, so we're called to bear fruit. When the father thinks of the Christian life, he, he expects it to be one of fruitfulness. All right, so what, what does we mean by that, fruitfulness? It may seem a little abstract. In this passage, it actually uh, specifies so in verse 10, it equates being fruitful as keeping the commandments of God, keeping the commandments of Jesus. And there's actually one specific command in mind. It's not just general commands. He's very specific that it is to love one another as I have loved you. That is the fruitfulness that Jesus has in mind. We are called to obey such that we love one another as Jesus has loved us. That is the call. That is Jesus' final charge to his disciples. That's what he wants to communicate to them. He's reinforcing the second commandment here, that they may, you may love your neighbor as yourself. But he takes it one step further. It's not just loving you as you would love. It's to love as Jesus would love, to love with the sacrificial love of Christ. So what does that mean for us? That simply means we are called to love one another as Christ has loved us. We can try to get around that, and we try to downplay that. We do that in a couple different ways. We might do that by saying, oh, well, just focus on the heart. We don't need to be about the fruit. Just focus on the content of my heart. My heart is really what matters. Now, that's actually true in a sense. It's true in a sense. Not, not fully, though. Because while the heart matters, our hearts are deceptive, and our hearts will confuse us. And that's why God focuses actually on the fruit, not specifically on the heart. Because we can say that we love the poor. But what's going to say we love the poor more than our pocketbook? That's going to say what our hearts really think about the poor. And our schedule is going to say how much we love spending time with our family 
more than our mouths might. And how much time you've actually spent in prayer, that's what's going to determine if you really love spending time with Jesus. There's no way around that. Those are just the facts. And that's convicting because we can't fake it. If you, prayed with, if you prayed this week, you prayed this week. If you didn't, you didn't. And we can say as much as we want about our hearts, but those are the facts. So God, yes, he does focus on our actions. Because he knows that talk can be cheap. But actions are expensive. They cost energy and time and effort. So he focuses on, on our efforts, on our fruit, not so that he can ignore the heart, but so he can actually reveal to us what our heart is actually thinking and feeling and saying. But we might also say, well, fruit doesn't really matter because I'm saved by grace. Why do I need to focus on this fruit? Just, I'll just focus on Christ. And that's where we have to ask ourselves, why do we downplay the fruit? Why do we downplay the fruitfulness? And why does, why does God seem to be emphasizing it here? Why does Jesus see, say that this is his final call? Why does he make it such a big deal? Well, actually, there's three reasons we actually see that he makes it a big deal for these three reasons. First of all, he calls us to love others for our joy. It's for ourselves. He's demanding this of us so that we may have joy. There is true joy in obedience to God. There is true joy in giving ourselves to others in love. We may not believe that, but that is actually the case. We can trust God on that or we cannot trust him. And another reason is that he commands us to love one another as a proof that we are his disciples. And this proof goes two ways, actually. It actually proves to me, to you, that you are a disciple personally. So that when you realize, oh, wow, I, I think I actually love someone. I was empathetic or sympathetic or compassionate. We're actually taken aback sometimes, like, oh, wow, maybe I'm actually connected to God himself. I thought I was heartless. God actually must be working in me. That's a blessing, a blessing that reinforces, oh, wow, maybe we have faith. Maybe we are connected to this Jesus Christ. But then it also is a proof to others, of course. That is the surest way of communicating the reality of God, that our love is actually fruit that they can taste, and they can taste and see that the Lord is good. That is why we want to be fruitful. But finally, we do all this for the glory of God. That's what we see in this scripture. That is why we bring fruit. And that's why we actually we find joy in obedience, because it, that joy glorifies God. We're enjoying God and obeying him. And we witness so that God may be glorified, so that more people may know him. That fruit is for the glory of God as well. So that's why we see God is really into this fruitfulness thing. It's because it's at the very heart of God. It is so that he is glorified and honored so that we have joy and so that other people may have joy as well. So we don't need to see this, this fruitfulness as like a, a curse, but it's a blessing, a blessing all around. But it, it might make us squirm a little bit because we, we think of our love we think, 
It is often fickle. It is often not where it needs to be, especially when we say that we can't get away with the, the heart trick. Oh, I love them in my heart. We're looking at actions here. And we are asked to love as Christ has loved. And Christ loved those who, who hated him. He loved his enemies. He loved those even who crucified him. And so we have to ask ourselves, do we have the love that would warrant God declaring us to be fruitful people? Do we have that kind of love? And we can feel condemned by that. We are not the fruitful people we are expected to be. And that's where we look at verse 3, right? Verse 3, comes to rescue. <laughs> Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So Jesus breaks his theme. He's all talking about vines and vineyards and fruit. He steps off and says, no, oh, by the way, you, you are already clean. So this statement stands out from all the rest. He's reminding his disciples where they stand before God. Not because of their works, but because of the word that they have received. They've been with Jesus from the beginning. They have heard his preaching. And what is Jesus preaching? Jesus was preaching that there is life in him, that he gives you access to the Father, that he will wash you clean from your sins. And that's where we see our second point of the text, that Jesus gives us the fruit that God requires. That's why he presents himself as the true vine. Because Israel has failed Israel has failed to be this fruitful vine. But there's a promise latent in those texts, those condemning texts. All those texts point to the fact that there is a new vine coming, a source of new life. We see this called uh, the branch or the, the new shoot. So there's this stump left over when Israel was cut down. And out of that, a single shoot will grow. One person will be fruitful and righteous out of Israel. One person, one man of God, and that one person is Christ. That is what Jesus is saying when he calls himself the true vine. He's not just saying, oh, I'm, I'm kind of like a vine. There's some attributes where vines are similar. No, he is the one to re restore and renew this vine of Israel a new fruitful vine that would go out into the whole world and create fruit to the glory of God. That is what Jesus is declaring. And latent in that comment is all of Jesus' ministry. Right? He has come to be the one who is righteous and faithful, the one who is victorious for us, who has completed the task to be fruitful. And so when his disciples stood there before him that night, they were already clean. They had already heard the testimony of Jesus. And even more, they were already loved. They were already loved. Look at verse 9. As the Father loves me, so have I loved you. And it says, again, and the disciples were called to love one another. Why? Or how? As I have loved you. He only calls them to love once they have known the love of Jesus. That's the starting point. 
And this love comes to them in a special way in this text as well. So they've spent all their time following Jesus, walking behind him. And then he turns and says, by the way, you are my beloved friend. Though I am God, I have chosen you as my friend. Look at verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. So as as their discipler, Jesus has given his life metaphorically to his people. But on the cross, he will climactically give his life to them, fully and truly, literally. So on the one hand, Jesus came to be the perfect and true Israel that they had failed to be. He had satisfied God's demand for love and for righteousness. But he had another task to do. He had to complete the demand for justice as well. He had to wither and die. He had to be killed for his people's fruitlessness. They stood condemned because of that. And so he was cut off. He was left all alone. And he was abandoned to his enemies. So that was the plan. That was Jesus' plan for his disciples And they understood that. They had received that from him. And in understanding that, they had become the very friends of Jesus. So only then, only then, does Jesus call us to love others. Once they have known the love that has come to them, dwelt among them, died for them, and risen to life for them. It's in that context that he calls them to love. They are called to love once they have feasted upon the fruitful love of Jesus Christ that they have come to know in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that is where things go awry. That is where religion gets it wrong. Because they reverse that order. You aren't loved and then you obey. You obey to get love. You basically are coming to God, proving your worth. Your life is creating a fruit basket. And when you get to heaven, you're going to present him with that fruit basket, and he's either going to let you into heaven or not. Now, what is the nature of that kind of obedience, that kind of striving? That's where you get your sour fruit, your bitter fruit. Because in the end, obedience like that, it's always self-centered. It's so that you can get what you want. So you can get heaven. You're nice to people because, well, then God will be nice to me. Or I give to other people because then God will have to give to me. That's just a big power play. And so you ultimately are walking around being obedient but having all these ulterior motives. And that's where Christians get critiqued. When we hear stories of hypocritical Christians who seem to be demanding even as they give because they're using other people so they can be right with God. 
All right, so how does this hit us? There's probably some of us here who think that we are doing a good job of obedience and that our fruit is pleasing God. And the result is that we are judgmental and we are prideful people. We look around and say, well, they just need to try hard like I am. Then they'll be good Christians. And you're judgmental of sinful people. You're impatient with them. You're condemning people and seeing them in black and white, that you are good and they are bad. All right, but then there's the other side of the coin. There's the people who realize that they're doing a really bad job of this. And you think that they might be holier, but no, they're just, have their own sins. They're anxious. And they're fearful. They can't go to God because he might destroy them. And they're they're constantly down on themselves because they're disobedient. And one of the ways you see this manifest is that they also don't have any backbone against sin. They can't stand up against it because if they ever declared anything to be bad, they'd be condemned in the process. So these kind of people, they look really nice, but it's for their own good. And that's where our culture is becoming really accepting. But that accepting, that accepting nature is not just because we love people. It's because we're shameful people who recognize our sin and we can't bear it. So we like to say, no, there is no such thing as sin. Because otherwise we'd be condemned. So what is the truth? The truth is that you can never coax God into loving you or accepting you by bringing good fruit. That's just not how it works. Christians come to obey God and they desire fruitfulness because they have already been accepted. You have already been accepted by Jesus Christ. Jesus had worked the fruit. He took care of it. You are now to receive that fruitfulness and to use it as your way of pleasing God. We're to enjoy and honor God because he has already loved us. He has already done so much for us. The truth is that God chooses you. You did not choose him. Jesus chose you. You did not choose him. It is not anything you did. So you should be humble. We should be a humble people, gloriously humble, because we know that we are sinners. We don't love any better. We have received the love of Jesus Christ. That alone is what gets us entrance before God. And yet we're also confident people because we know what the truth is. Though we have screwed it up and though we are disobedient, we know what's true in Jesus. He has loved us well and we know what love is. And we'll not accept these counterfeit loves because we've known the real thing. And we must not accept these counterfeit loves. And that brings us to our third point. You actually have to be fruitful personally, too. That's part of the Christian life. We love God and we enjoy him. And for his glory, we are personally fruitful through Jesus Christ. So the first step in that is receiving Jesus as your true vine. Accepting this work, this fruit from him. 
Now, there may be some of you here who have always been part of the Christian crowd. You've always been among Christians. But maybe like Judas Iscariot, you've kind of just been part of the crowd but never really understood, never received Jesus as the true vine, as your source of life. And you just see the Christian life as something that's really hard and toilsome and that you're not very good at it. My encouragement may be to receive the work of Jesus, receive his fruitfulness, so you can stop working. You can be done and recognize that you are accepted by God already, right now, here and now, and be free from that. Once you've done that, there's a second step. You are to abide in Christ. To abide in Christ, to abide in Christ's love. Now, what does that mean? We don't use that word abide very much. It just means to stay there. Stay in his love. Stay in Christ. Remain there. Live there. Dwell there. Be there. That is where we are to stay. And that's where, if anyone, even our hearts condemn us and say, no, you need to be better to be accepted by Jesus. No, we fight against that. That is not true. If we ever feel like we are failures, we are victorious in Christ. We remain in that. We will not resort back to works. We refuse to do it. And so the question is, why is obedience so difficult? If we are loved so well, why is it so difficult? It's because we are not abiding in Christ's love. The hope is that, like the vine, fruitfulness would just flow through us. The nutrition, everything would come up from the roots and go straight to the branch. The branch doesn't have to do much. It just has to stay on the, on the vine. It just has to stay attached. And the hope is that we are so connected to Christ that we love and adore him so much that his love just flows right through us. That everything is motivated by what Christ has done. So that obedience isn't something that's forced, it's something that's natural. Something that feels right and feels good. Because we are loved. And that's where there's an organic connection here. That our obedience should flow out of the fact that we have been loved. The fact that why would Christ die for me and then ask me to do something that would be for my, for my ill, for my bad? Why would he destroy us by obedience? No, he has loved us. We just naturally trust him. And we long to obey him because he has been so good to us. We don't focus on the obedience. We focus on what Christ has done. And the obedience follows. It flows through us. And so then we ask the question, how do we do that? How do we abide? All right, first step. We need to read the word. This passage talks about the word dwelling in us. We abide in his word. The question is, do we read our Bibles? You don't have anything more important going on. 
Like, this is the most important thing. You need to abide in Christ. And it's not about working harder. We work really hard to get our obedience, but we're not abiding. Now, that might mean carving out some time and carving out, like, real hardcore time that is not going to be interrupted. For you moms, that might mean your husband's relieving you of your duty for a while, letting the kids kind of, that dad and I will survive, but he needs to give the mom some time with the, with the scriptures to find life in them. It might look like turning off the news or the game. It might look like getting up earlier, but we need to make that time. I think we expect that time to kind of magically come about, but no, it's hard. It doesn't just magically come out. Time will be filled and we need to make time for what is truly important, to abide in Jesus. And here's my warning, though. The scripture can be distracting, and it can be hard to read. So what are we trying to do? We're using scripture to remember what Jesus has done for us. We can use scripture a bunch of different other ways. We can look for our political agendas, our social agendas, look for ethics in scripture, or for theology in scripture and never actually abide in Christ. We've come to Scripture and left and never actually found Jesus in it. Find Jesus in the Scripture, and obedience will come alongside. Fruitfulness will come alongside. The glory of God will come. All right, secondly, this is a hard one from verse 2. We must allow ourselves to be pruned by God. God's work is to make us fruitful, to connect us to Jesus more and more. So we need to be people who are ready to be pruned and who in that pain and that suffering move towards Jesus, to find him and move towards him and to love him more. That's why what we talked about last week, talked about how when Jesus takes away the things that we want, he is trying to give us more of himself. Too often he takes away the things we want and then we just sit there withering, disconnected from the vine. We need to run back to Jesus. That is why we are suffering. And finally, we are called to pray. We have this really odd promise here, twice, twice, right? That if you are truly abiding, God will give you whatever you ask for in prayer. Now, that's not a trick to get a million dollars, right? No, this is, it shows that your desires will be so shaped that you'll ask for the things that God actually wants to give you. Things like wisdom and obedience. Things like humility. Be careful with that one, right? We pray for humility. That's a dangerous one. God is often far too eager to give us humility. We might ask for opportunities to share the faith. But ultimately, we pray that we might know the love of Jesus. We might know what he did for us and truly value it. All right, so... Here's your charge. Abide in Christ. Abide in Christ so you may have the joy of being a friend of Jesus. Abide in Christ so that others may see your fruit and may taste the very goodness of God. Abide in Christ so that God may be glorified. Let us go and be the very goodness and blessing of God to be that fruitful vine for the sake of the world. Connect yourself to the true and living vine, Jesus Christ.